some of, some of our best debates ever are those where we stretched hard to look over the horizon at coming technologies that have potential to change how we live. And each time asking a key question, just because this technology perhaps can work, does that mean that it should be put to work? We have asked that in relation to artificial intelligence and genetic engineering and a number of other similar technological developments, similar in the sense that what once seemed far-fetched has become at least plausible and therefore we think debatable. And now over that same horizon, we see an idea taking shape that requires a mouthful of syllables to give it its name. Solar geoengineering, also known as solar radiation management or modification. And that is a proposed set of technologies that aim to reflect some sunlight and reduce the inflow into the atmosphere of solar energy, thereby partially reducing global temperatures. That's the idea. Or put another way, it's the idea that the amount of heat that we get from the sun can be controlled and in an era of concern about climate change, partially reflected away from the earth by a number of different means, like putting reflective materials on rooftops or putting mirrors into orbit or injecting aerosols into the stratosphere that would effectively act like a kind of sunblock. You get the idea. The question is, are these ideas feasible? And if they are feasible, are they desirable? Well, we think in all of these questions, we have the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two who are experts in this topic and passionate about it, who will argue for and against this resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and we are here at the K Playhouse at Hunter College in New York City. This, this audience will choose our winner, and also, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. A reminder to our audience one last time to cast your pre-debate vote, the vote before you hear the arguments, visit iq2us.org forward slash vote. You'll be prompted to cast a vote for or against the resolution or to declare yourself undecided. We're gonna keep that open for just about one more minute. And I wanna explain now, you'll be voting again after you've heard the arguments, and it's the team whose numbers have changed the most in the upward direction between the first and the second vote that we will declare our winner. Our resolution, engineering, social, our, I'm gonna just pick up because I get to edit and when I make mistakes, they didn't actually really happen. They just get lost, so. Our resolution, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Let's meet our debaters starting first with the team arguing for that resolution. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Clive Hamilton. Clive, you've come a long, long way to be part of this debate. You're a professor at Charles Sturt University in Canberra, Australia. You are a climate advocate, a best-selling author. Some of your books include Earth Masters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. Most recently, your book, Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia, was published finally after three other publishers pulled out, citing fear of punishment from Beijing, and that book then became an immediate bestseller. So congratulations to that, and thanks for being here, Clive. Thank and now let's meet your partner. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Anjali Vishwamohanan. 
Anjali, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. You're a scholar at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford. You're a lawyer. You're an energy policy enthusiast. Uh, previously, you've worked with the Council on Energy, Environment, and Water in New Delhi on renewable energy policy, finance, and governance. You've worked at some of India's top law firms on energy projects. Welcome. It's great to have you, Anjali, on Intelligence Thank Squared. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks very much. So two of our debaters came a very long way, and the others also traveled, just not quite as far. Let's welcome the team arguing against the resolution, starting first with David Keith. Hi, David. Uh, you've worked at the, uh, the meeting point of climate science and energy technology and public policy for 25 years. You're a professor at Harvard, where you led the development of its solar geoengineering research program. You're the founder of Carbon Engineering. That's a company developing technology to capture CO2 from ambient air. Uh, Time magazine named you one of its heroes of the environment. That must be a burden to carry, but I want to thank you very much for joining us at Intelligence Square. Thank you. Welcome, Intimidating David. to be here. And your partner, also arguing against the resolution, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Ted Parson. Hi, Ted. Uh, you study international environmental law and policy and the role of science and technology in policy making. You're a professor of environmental law at UCLA, uh, co-director of the Emmett Institute on Climate Change and Environment there. You've worked and consulted for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the UN's Environment Program. Ted, it is great to have you here at Intelligence Squared. Thank you. It's great to be here. So here they are, our four debaters, ready to get started. And let's move on to round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. Anjali, you can start making your way to the, to the floor. Speaking first, for the resolution, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Oxford scholar Anjali Vishwamohanan. A very good evening to everyone present in this room today and everyone joining this discussion virtually. This debate on solar geoengineering has been rife within the scientific, the academic, and the policy circles, but this is one of the first few instances of an open and hopefully engaging public conversations on this topic. As in the fight for attaining climate change justice, the voice of the people will be of critical value in setting the tone of the discourse on climate geoengineering. And therefore, what you take from this room tonight is, of, is, is very important. In this part of the evening, I'd like to take a shot at answering the question of whether we really need solar geoengineering, because I think that would give us half the context we need to really start thinking about the proposition tonight. When Clive takes over, he will, start, he will talk about um, the issues associated with deployment of the technology, specifically those around control of the technology and its implications for um, global security. One of the first things that came to my mind when I thought about what I'd like to speak, tonight, speak on tonight is this episode from this um, American sci-fi sitcom called Rick and Morty. Uh, the sitcom revolves around two main characters, which is this nutty scientist grandfather, Rick, and his naive teenage grandson, Morty. So in this particular episode, um, Morty has some trouble uh, speaking to a girl that he fancies at his school. And Rick helps him through this process by developing a love portion of sorts. Uh, and as, as is the case with most of Rick's inventions and solutions, Things go horribly wrong, and the entire world is destroyed. 
But Rick and Morty travel to a parallel universe and pick up their lives like nothing has changed at all. Now, the reason that I've brought up this episode is not to imply by any means that any of the scientists involved behind climate geoengineering are crazy. Not at all. The only reason that most of us are in this room here tonight is because we are very concerned about the implications of climate change. The only reason that we're sitting on the opposite sides of the stage tonight is because we differ in the way we are approaching this problem. Now, getting back to the episode, the whole disaster could have been avoided if Rick, being the, being the grandfather and the wiser and more uh, competent person, had pointed out that instead of looking for a quick fix in the form of a love portion, Morty should have just taken time to muster courage on his own and go speak to the girl in a while. Now, on similar lines, the problem we are discussing tonight is global warming. And solar geoengineering is perhaps an answer to the question of how can we most effectively cool the Earth fast. But I think the real question is, how can we most effectively cool the Earth fast and keep it that way in the long run? We already know that we need to maintain the global warming from, reaching, from going beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius to prevent disastrous consequences for the planet. The IPCC, which is a UN expert panel of climate scientists, have already figured out pathways we could follow to stay below this 1.5 degree target. It requires immediate, drastic action to shift to carbon neutral technologies. The report categorically excludes solar geoengineering from any of its pathways due to what, it's due to what it calls large uncertainties and knowledge gaps, as well as substantial risks and institutional and social constraints. And that's putting it mildly. Solar geoengineering does not affect the processes that are making the world warm. It merely attempts to stop or slow the process and, getting, and making the effects from getting worse, buying us more time to do what we should already be doing, which is changing our energy sources and cutting our profligate consumption. Any such effort to buy us more time is only likely to enable more opportunists to step in and benefit in wily ways from the shifting landscape. There are wide differences of opinions even amongst the scientists working on this technology regarding the effectiveness of this technology, what the real-world risks of this technology are, and to what extent these risks can be contained. The list of negative impacts on deployment is quite long. But one of the most immediate impacts that will be felt will be through the change in the precipitation cycles. It will also affect tropical forests, the ozone layer, and the oceans. It will also reduce the amount of solar radiation reaching the Earth's surface. This will affect both crop yields and also diminishing the potential of solar energy, which is one of the biggest alternatives that has been con contemplated to fossil fuel energy generation. The IPCC pathways see renewables contributing towards 70 to 80 percent of the, of the energy supply by 2050 of which solar energy will constitute a sizable chunk. Throwing solar geoengineering into the mix will result in the lack of a coherent strategy on remedying climate change. I am also certain that at some point during the discussion today, 
we are likely to hear that solar geoengineering is intended to benefit the most vulnerable populations, protecting them from the harms of climate change. But what may not be explained as clearly is that there are going to be winners and losers in this bid to reconfigure climate. And right now, the, the discourse on solar geoengineering and on both research and deployment is in the hands of the global north. Let me rephrase. It is controlled by nations that are yet to take full responsibility for their disproportional historical contributions to GHG emissions, which is why we are forced to have this conversation today in the first place. To conclude, there's no sugarcoating it. Keeping warming to below 1.5 degrees will be really hard. But let's also be very clear that the world has a scientific understanding the technological capacity and the financial means to tackle climate change at its source without considering solar geoengineering. Thank you. Thank you, Antalivi from Wonahan. The resolution again, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea and here to make his opening statement against this resolution, which means he is in favor of the idea, UCLA professor Ted Parson. Welcome. Thank you. Geoengineering does sound crazy when you first hear about it. That response is completely understandable, and it's also politically potent. That's why, for the past 10 years or so, our opponents have won. Talking about geoengineering is pretty much taboo in polite scientific and environmental company. It's been starved of research support and marginalized in climate change assessments. But this is dangerous. It's dangerous for the environment, and it's dangerous for the preserving opportunities for human development. It is essential to take geoengineering seriously, to research how it might work and what risks it holds, and to confer on how to safely control it. Now, to talk sensibly about geoengineering, you have to consider the climate change risks that it's intended to combat, how bad they are, and what other preferred ways there are to reduce them. The answer is sobering. The risks are grave, the opportunities to limit them adequately through other means are weak, and the news gets worse with each passing year. You know the headlines. We've already heated the Earth about two degrees Fahrenheit and are seeing pretty serious impacts. And we're on track to continue heating another two to nine degrees Fahrenheit within the lifetimes of today's children. Stopping climate change requires reducing human greenhouse gas emissions to zero. This means cutting fossil fuels from their present 80% of world energy to about zero. There is no serious disagreement on this need. But such a vast economic and technological transformation is a project of decades, not years. And despite positive recent signs, like the Paris Accords and the rapid recent gains in solar and wind energy, we've barely started. World emissions are still growing. And even with a crash program, it's probably too late to limit climate change to safe levels by cutting emissions alone. Now, cutting emissions isn't our only tool. We can also remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Uh, this can help, maybe a lot. But we're relying on it now to a dangerous degree. The most optimistic climate projections all assume that we'll scale this up rapidly from zero to billions of tons a year. This reliance on technologies which are not fully developed or tested is a huge gamble. And even if this does work, it's probably too slow. 
Removing CO2 from the atmosphere is like draining a lake through a straw. It will work, but it'll take a long time. So deep emission cuts and carbon removal are both essential, but they may not be enough soon enough, even with extreme efforts. We need something else, and geoengineering might be that something else. Now, I'll address the two biggest policy concerns that have been raised about geoengineering. First, can it be governed at all? Geoengineering presently looks like it might be cheap and easy, at least cheap and easy to do it crudely. This is actually a problem for governance because it may put the capability within the reach of more than a dozen nations. As a result, if we should ever face decisions about using it, we would want them to be under effective international control. Even if someone tried to do it unilaterally, that would still require an effective international response. Building this international control won't be easy, but nations have come together many times to address global challenges adequately, even if not perfectly. Think about the post-war creation of the United Nations, or the global international economic order, or more recently, the successful global phase-out of ozone-depleting chemicals. You can imagine the required body being a UN-style global institution, a concert of great world powers, a set of soft law norms, or something in between these. But there are simply no grounds to claim that building the needed governance capacity is impossible. And this is a way that calling geoengineering crazy is doing real harm. In addition to blocking needed research, this stance is also obstructing the policy discussions that are needed to help develop governance. Last month, a Swiss proposal in the UN Environment Program to start research and consultation on geoengineering was blocked by the United States, Brazil, and Saudi Arabia. This enforced silence is making risks worse, risks of climate change and also risks of reckless, badly governed geoengineering. The second big objection to studying or normalizing geoengineering is that it will tempt us away from the essential work of cutting emissions. Now, we agree with our opponents that anything that hinders deep emissions cuts is dangerous. But will studying geoengineering have this effect? Research suggests the opposite. When people learn about geoengineering, their support for emissions cuts gets stronger, not weaker. They don't see it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They see it as a signal of alarm. If you're thinking about doing something this radical and scary, then climate change must be really bad. Even the fossil fuel denial groups, uh, fossil fuel funded denial groups, seem to get this. They've recently started attacking geoengineering as crazy. This seems strange given their prior behavior and the interest they represent. The likely explanation is that they think attention to geoengineering will raise alarm about climate change and so galvanize stronger action on all fronts, including emission cuts. In conclusion, the gravity of climate risks demands looking at all responses, even those that may at first seem frightening. There are plenty of grounds for concern about geoengineering, but there is no basis for calling these insurmountable without serious examination. Nor is there any basis to decide in advance that the risks of a world aware of geoengineering are worse than those of a world with severe climate change and no means available to limit it in time. Just as other technologies that carry risks as well as benefits are not crazy, chemotherapy for cancer treatments, vaccines for infectious diseases, geoengineering is not crazy. Treating it as crazy is blocking needed research and blocking policy dialogue on how to use it safely. The resolution is dangerous. Please vote no.
Thank you, Ted Parson. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing out this resolution. Engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Debating for the resolution that engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea, Clive Hamilton, author of Earthmasters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering. Ladies and gentlemen, Clive Hamilton. Solar geoengineering of the kind that our opponents uh, are advocating means handing to someone the power to regulate the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth and so the climate system of the planet. On our side, we want to know um, what level of political maturity and ethical sophistication is necessary to use for anyone who has that power to use it safely. And since solar geoengineering will affect uh, people around the world in different ways, we want to know whether it can be used in, uh, in a way that's fair. So we're here tonight debating geoengineering because the big carbon pollu polluting nations uh, of the world are so p beset by political, social and ethical failings that they have shifted the Earth's climate system through rapid increases in greenhouse gas emissions to a point where we're uh, on track to uh, uh, see an unfolding catastrophe. And these nations have done it in full knowledge of the consequences. Yes, solar geoengineering may well be able to reduce uh, for a time, to suppress, I should say, uh, the rate of warming of the planet, but it sidesteps the political, social and ethical problems it's the mother of all techno-fixes. The same political institutions and the same people running those institutions who have so mismanaged the emissions of greenhouse gas emissions around the world will be responsible for deploying the solar shield between the Earth and the Sun. Who would you trust to have their hand on the global thermostat? That is, the power to turn the Earth's temperature up a bit, down a bit, up a bit more, down a bit more, to change the weather in ways that may benefit Chinese people at the expense of Indian people, Americans at the expense of Africans. Who should make the decision? Should the Kremlin make the decision? Should the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party make the decision? Should Donald Trump make the decision? Could we expect to see a tweet one morning? Hey, this heat wave down at Mar-a-Lago is getting out of control, so I've instructed the US Climate Regulatory Authority to turn it down. Turn it down. <laughs> Our opponents have put a great deal of thought into countering those who argue that solar geoengineering would unintentionally harm some nations while benefiting others. It's been suggested by some climate models that it could disrupt the Indian monsoon. David has said uh, previously that if solar geoengineering is done carefully enough, uh, these unintentional harms can be avoided. But we on our side, we're concerned about the intentional harms. That is, when those who have their hand on the global thermostat use it to deliberately damage their adversaries. After all, the generals have always dreamed of controlling the weather 
it gives a decisive military advantage. Um, it's no, what's known as a force multiplier. Any program of solar geoengineering will inevitably involve the military. It's a strategic issue. And so the landmark 2014 report on solar geoengineering by the US National Research Council was partly funded by the CIA. The CIA wanted to know if uh, uh, America's adversaries could use solar geoengineering to damage the interests of the United States. The militaries around the world, as well as the intelligence agencies, are watching this debate because they're anxious about the strategic implications of putting a shield uh, between the sun and, and the earth. Now, those in charge of climate regulation through sulfate aerosol spraying, for example, would be twiddling with the knobs on a weekly or monthly basis. How much should be sprayed? How frequently should it be done? Where on earth should the planes be sent to spray the sulfates into the upper atmosphere? What kind of particles uh, should we use? Each decision will change the weather conditions of some people more than others in different ways. Who would you trust to have such power? Our opponents believe that it will be done on the advice of a cohort of clever, rational scientists. But that's not how the world works. And even if it did, we may not get a Professor Keith in charge. We may get a Dr. Strangelove. After all, one of the earliest and strongest advocates of sulphate aerosol spraying was Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb and the real-life model, incidentally, for Dr. Strangelove. He wanted to use nukes to flatten mountains and carve out new harbours. Teller celebrated man's mastery over nature. His protégé and the co-author of his paper advocating solar geoengineering, uh, Pentagon weaponeer Lowell Wood, he said, we've engineered every other environment we live in, why not the planet? Some advocates say there's nothing wrong with in the, uh, nothing inherently desirable about the climate that nature gave us. And we've now got these exciting new tools to set the climate of the earth wherever we choose. So the great Promethean dream of human domination over nature could be realised with solar geoengineering until, that is, nature starts to fight back. So tonight, to finish, the decision is yours. All things considered, if you trust humans to use the technology responsibly and fairly, then vote no, solar geoengineering is not a crazy idea. If you believe, as we do, that our leaders cannot be trusted to have such power over nature, over their own people, over other nations, then vote yes, geoengineering is a crazy idea. Thank you, Clive Hamilton. And that is our resolution. Engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. And here to make his opening statement against this resolution, David Keith, Harvard professor and founder of Carbon Engineering. Ladies and gentlemen, David Keith. Thank you. If you want a stable climate, you must stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere. Nothing about solar geoengineering changes that essential fact in any way at all. But cutting and 
Fossil fuels are the core of those emissions, and it's tempting to think because we have to end fossil fuels that anything that distracts us from that is crazy. That's not quite right. The fact is that, sorry, I'm spacing out. Um, um, emissions cuts are absolutely necessary, but that's not the whole story. And the reason is the following. Emissions cuts are absolutely possible, very doable. We can get, we can get emissions to zero with confidence. The increasing low price of solar power is fantastic, and that combined with the youth activism we're seeing gives me some hope of real political change. The challenge is the following. Even on that marvelous day where emissions are finally brought to zero, which is absolutely doable, the climate problem is not solved. This is not a choice between doing things slowly or quickly. It's a choice about what we do. The reason for that is that climate risk is proportional to cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide. The more we admit, the higher the risk gets, whatever we do about solar geoengineering. When we bring emissions to zero, we have simply stopped building up that underlying risk. We have not eliminated it. So cutting emissions to zero is necessary, but it is not a sufficient and complete solution. We will also need to adapt. We can adapt to reduce climate risks by measures such as air conditioners or dikes. But that also cannot be a complete solution. Polar bears cannot take advantage of air conditioners, and dikes can only hold back water in some places, particularly rich ones. The CO2 we put in the atmosphere has an environmental footprint that lasts for thousands of years. Even once emissions are brought to zero, if we want to reduce the underlying long-run risk of climate change, solar geoengineering doesn't help. We need to do it by removing CO2 from the atmosphere. But that is inherently a slow process. There's no way in which it itself can be a sufficient solution to the climate problem. The reason is, the reason is both that it's slow and expensive, and that it makes no sense, as is in those IPCC scenarios, to use it in the near term while we are also massively pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. The first rule of holes is when you find yourself in one, stop digging. It doesn't make sense to imagine that this technology of carbon removal is going to get us out of the problem that we need to stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere by political action. So, Solar geoengineering may allow us to significantly reduce the risks of the CO2 that's in the atmosphere. It is no panacea, but the evidence that it can reduce risks is strong. Essentially, every major climate model has been run looking at how solar geoengineering works, and they find that if it is done relatively uniformly over the planet, as could be achieved with aerosols in the stratosphere, and if it is done to roughly cut in half or moderate the warming effect of CO2, uh, if it's done, therefore, as a supplement to emissions cuts, not as a substitute for them, we find that in essentially every region, climate risks are reduced, not just warming, but extreme precipitation, precipitation, uh, uh, the changes in water availability, those changes are reduced, not water availability, but the changes in it, uh, tropical cyclones, sea level rise. Our opponents have claimed that this is theory, that we shouldn't trust these models. But they're the same models with the same physics, with the same aerosol physics, as are used to understand the risks of building up CO2 in the atmosphere. You cannot easily have it both ways. You cannot say that you 
believe the models that tell us how risky CO2 is in the atmosphere, which you should, and say that those models have nothing meaningful to say about how aerosols in the stratosphere might reduce risks. So solar geoengineering really can reduce risks, or at least there's strong evidence for it, but it cannot be a complete solution for climate change. Two major reasons. One, it has a whole set of poorly known environmental side effects. You're adding aerosols to the atmosphere and aerosols are a health hazard. You can damage the ozone layer. The warming, even if you reduce warming, you can reduce precipitation in some places that could harm people. Second, there's no way in which it can ever be a perfect substitute for adding emissions. For example, the atmosphere, the ocean will still acidify. So if one thought that you could keep emitting carbon dioxide and turn up the amount of solar geoengineering again and again, you'd walk yourself further and further away from the current climate with more and more danger, a, a, a course that could only end in disaster. So the best claim that I think one can make about solar geoengineering is that that a combination of, emi of emissions cuts and solar geoengineering might be less dangerous than emissions cuts alone. There's lots of evidence for that claim, but that evidence is not decisive. If the motion tonight was, should we do it? Should we start geoengineering? I would vote no. But the motion tonight is, solar engineering solar radiation is crazy. And what crazy means is that you never want to do it under any circumstance. It means you are so sure you don't want to do it that you don't want to do research, lest that tempt people to do it. It means you don't even want to talk about it, lest people get dangerous ideas in their head. Our contention is that solar geoengineering might be part of the way that humans manage environmental risks of climate change this century, that a combination of emissions cuts, adaptation, carbon removal, and solar geoengineering might enable a safer climate but only by discussing it openly and researching it can people make that judgment with information. Thank you, David Keith. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our resolution is engineering, solar radiation is a crazy idea. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at the K Playhouse in New York City. We have two teams arguing this resolution. Engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. The team arguing for the resolution, which means that they are highly skeptical of the idea of solar radiation. Anjali Vishwamohanan and uh, Clive Hamilton have argued, uh, basically taking the position, do we really need uh, geoengineering? They say that the real need is getting to the point of total emission cuts, that uh, geo solar geoengineering represents a quick fix, a solution that will not work in the long run and that is full of all sorts of hazards. At best, it buys time to do what we should be doing. They doubt very much that in that bought time, the right thing will be done. They talk about negative impacts on tropical forests, on the ozone layer, on crop yields, on the potential actually to use solar energy since some of the sun's rays will be blocked. They talk about the fact that there will be winners and losers and they raise the prospect that the global north will take control of this, if not the military, and that the losers will be the powerless and very likely 
the, the weak. And the large question they raise is the question of who will be in charge, who will uh, have governance over this. And they raise uh, very, very serious questions about wanting to trust the hand of whoever controls the thermostat, that this is an ethical challenge as well as a practical challenge. The team arguing uh, against the resolution, which means that they are arguing for, at a minimum, further research, study, and exploration of the concept of uh, engineering solar radiation. Uh, Ted Parson and David Keith, they say, sure, on first glance, it does sound crazy, but they're arguing that the idea should be taken seriously, that it deserves focus uh, on its merits, study of the possibilities. They th say it's long past time that the taboo uh, status of this idea, its marginalization, should end. They say that uh, they agree that this end goal should be cuts to zero carbon, but that the clock is ticking and that we're already past the point where damage has been done, that the uh, idea of, of geoengineering should be done in concert with cuts because we, are already, we already need the shield uh, that's in place. And they also address the governance question with a, a kind of a basic trust in the fact, looking back at the past, that um, difficult transnational ideas have been successfully brought together uh, in, in the past and that that could be done again. They do have some trust, as their opponent said, in the ability of scientists to, to figure things out and of governments to figure things out. So there is a lot to get into here. But before we do, for the sake, before we actually begin the competitive part of the conversation, for the sake of the layperson, I would just like to, to get a, a concrete picture of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about putting aerosols into the atmosphere. I did a radio interview and somebody's question to me was, is it going to smell? Is, it go is the sky going to look different? How will those things get there? And I thought, you know, these are practical questions for the layperson. So I'm not sure who wants to take that on. I think I'm, I'm tempted to ask David to tell us how does, how does if, if it works, what's, what's being discussed without, if you could do it also in 45 seconds or less, that would be really appreciated. <laughs> Well, there are many ways that it might be done, but if it was aerosols in the stratosphere, it would likely be put there by airplanes, uh, and a number of sort of 20 or 30 airplanes by mid-century operating from a few airfields. That's one way it could be done. And, and, they, and they would go up every day and do this? They'd be flying continuously, putting up aerosols, and the aerosols naturally spread evenly in the stratosphere. It's actually very hard, so you can't get them in one place to block weather. That's actually impossible if you wanted to. Um, so, so the uh, uh, stratosphere things spread pretty evenly, and so you'd be bringing aerosols up there, and they'd be spreading over the stratosphere. And, and what's the chemical being discussed? So the most best understood chemical is sulfates or sulfuric acid. So it's the same thing that is naturally in the stratosphere, both from volcanoes and natural emissions, but there's a bunch of other ideas. Okay, and I would like to go to the other side. If you can answer, help us understand without yet competing on, on the concept, just to describe what it is we're talking about. So not telling us why it's a bad idea, but telling us what the idea actually is, if there's more to add to that. Well, David has uh, described the actual, uh, most likely, most discussed actual physical process of um, solar geoengineering, sending up a fleet of planes on a regular basis to spray sulfate aerosols, which react in the chemicals of the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere, in a way that blocks uh, some sunlight okay. coming in, and it could be regulated so that uh, you could uh, uh, basically uh, adjust the amount of sunlight. Okay, so air. we all agree to that. And will it smell? No. And will it, the sky look different? No. Yes. It will, be, it will oh. whiten the sky. No, the sky would, well... Oh, now this, we're off and running. This gets into the question of, of <laughs> how much bit. we're doing. 
Okay. So if you did enough solar geoengineering to, say, offset the effects of four times CO2, taking you all the way back to pre-industrial, and if you did it in the sort of way that makes the biggest particles, which well, would be crazy, then you can see some whitening. Okay. So um, do you want to... Well, I mean... Sorry. Go, go for it. Yeah. Let me just finish on this because... Um, you know, David, uh, David has been a crucial person, probably the leading scientist uh, pushing for uh, a research program in solar geoengineering, and, and he's even, in some of his writings, suggested we should be deploying it soon. Um, one of the problems with it is that uh, how much of it do we do? Initially, people were saying we should do so much to reduce the temperature back to pre-industrial levels, one degree Celsius or a bit more. Uh, David says, no, we need to do uh, much uh, less than that. Um, but I just point out, there's a sulphur industry uh, that would, uh, be would be called upon to provide the sulphur uh, to be put in the planes to set up. Some of that sulphur comes from, ex is extracted from the flue gases of coal-fired power plants. And that same sulphur, which we don't allow into the lower atmosphere because it causes sulphur pollution, uh, poor for, bad for health and so on, is then put on planes and put into the upper atmosphere where it is, uh, blocks some sunlight reaching the planet. I think that, along with the uh, damage to the ozone layer, would undo all of the work that we've been doing, reducing CFCs to try to reduce the hole in the ozone layer, really tells us that when you start messing with the chemistry of the upper atmosphere, you're really in very, uh, very dangerous territory. I want to go to the other side, but first I just want to ask the audience here in New York, have you had enough of a sketch of what it is we're talking about? Okay, I'm, I'm taking your word for it because I, I get it also. Who would like to respond uh, on the other side to what's just, what's just been said? Ed, do you want to take Can I find some technical points first? Um, uh, yeah, you do technical points first, and then I'll pick up a couple of uh, non-technical. It's very tough to sort out the technical from the non-technical, but I want to respond to two points that Angeli made at the beginning. One is she said that um, it would make the precipitation change. You mean Angeli? Pardon? You mean Angeli said? Angeli, yeah, mm -hmm. that it would make precipitation change. That's absolutely correct, but you didn't say which direction. And, of course, one of the big risks of climate change is that precip, and especially intense precipitation, goes up. And what solar geoengineering does is it tends to reduce that. So you kind of hid from the audience the fact that one of the major risks of climate change, for example, extreme tropical cyclones, are not increased but reduced by solar geoengineering. Okay, since, you, since you put a specific yeah. out there, I want to let Anjali respond to that if you would like to. I agree with, uh, with what um, David said, that the precipitation levels have sort of gone up with global warming, and the sort of idea that he's talking about is to sort of bring it back to what it was I, maybe I, I, originally. I just want to encourage the debaters to, to play to the audience. Yeah. So maybe yeah. as in what um, David's plan with, um, and the general plan with solar geoengineering is, is generally to bring back precipitation to what it was um, at earlier levels. But I think the real point to really think about here is that a lot of countries have sort of adapted to climate change over the years. It's not something that started today or yesterday. So, so a lot of, um, say, um, crop growth and a lot of the agricultural seasons in different countries have also adapted to climate change and the sudden change back to what it was may not um, necessarily be in everybody's best interest. I, I need to come in and say that is absolutely not my plan. I think that would be nutty. I've never advocated that. I actually don't know anybody who is. What the people who seem to be advocating for, for doing so, first of all, what we're advocating for is understanding. That's, understanding that's, what the risks are and and, and for precipitation, if I was going to advocate anything, I advocate that we regulate it so it doesn't keep increasing. That's David's plan. 
That's, that's David's plan for uh, solar geoengineering. Uh, it's a plan that's evolved over quite a few years. I've been debating uh, David on this question for, I don't know how long, eight, eight, seven or eight years. And David, I think, um, has adjusted the plan to try to deal with as many of the objections that have been raised to it, including the ones that Anjali uh, has mentioned. Now, if the world decides to go with David's plan rather than somebody else's more radical uh, plan, perhaps, um, then maybe that's a, a good thing. But what I've noticed with David's plan is that he's been adjusting it over the years in a way that tries to head off the principal objections that people in uh, fora like this uh, have been making uh, in order to make it more palatable to the general public. Well, so let me, let me just politicise but, but But what you're doing there is you're questioning his motives as opposed to his science? Well, no, I'm saying this is a... No. Uh, OK, because... Well, no, I'm saying the science can't be separated from the, uh, the way in which... Uh, okay. All geoengineering is presented uh, in a more palatable way to okay. the general public. I, I just, I, I just want to, as a presumption here, like uh, un, assume that all of our debaters are arguing in good faith. And if, and if your plan has evolved in re response to criticism or critiques or questions or challenges, I don't I'm not I, sure. I don't think I, I have a plan. I really don't. Okay. Yeah. Let's let Ted. Uh, yeah. May, may I, may I come on on this? Yeah. So, so. Um, there actually is a lot of confusion between scientific results and things that people propose might be reasonable bases for action. And there's ways that you can get confused by mixing up uh, the two. So it would probably be extraordinarily damaging and destructive to let CO2 go to three or four times pre-industrial levels and then hammer the earth with solar geoengineering to bring it back to pre-industrial. I don't know anybody who's ever proposed that that would be a sensible idea. What you can find in the literature is scientific studies using climate models where they assume that in order to hit the model's climate really hard and get an informative result. But you don't want to misinterpret those results as saying that's how it would be used and that's how the scientific authors advocate it's being used. The broader point here is, is that... Is, is, it, is it similar to when in, in biology when they dose mice with enormous amounts of something? That's, that, that's a very nice analogy. Well, yeah, I'm not trying yes. to be on your side. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one side or the other, but it, it's something that illustrates the fact. Often in scientific studies, if you have constraints on what you're able to do, you want to hit a system, an artificial system, or a small system really hard to observe how it responds but no one in their right mind would propose acting in that way in the real earth that we all have to live in. The broader point here is that we're all arguing about hypotheticals because nobody knows what interventions might be feasible, fair in their effects, desirable, we don't even well, know that the main form of intervention would remain sulfur. Let, uh, let, let's let Anjali jump in on this. I think um, it is very reasonable to assume that once we're, once we're talking about research and modeling, that we would always try and see what would happen if we increase sulfate aerosols in the, in the atmosphere like by 10 times as what we initially planned, because we are all initially modeling. We're trying to see what the impacts of it would be on the Earth, and it's all research. It's, it's nothing that we, we're not deploying it, but we're trying to see what the impacts of different circumstances would be on the Earth. 
Is that, am I not right yeah. in saying that? I, I'm not criticizing these scientific studies. I'm agreeing that these are useful ways to get information. Yes, what I'm, what and I'm I criticizing agree with is that. the misunderstanding that says because we studied a huge hit like that in a model, that's what we're advocating doing. I, do, I, I completely agree with that, but my point is that once that information is out there, that in case we, we increase the amount of aerosols in the atmosphere, that might reduce the warming further. That might just instigate a bunch of players in the market to sort of increase their emissions and not follow government uh, regulations. Clive, there was sort of a, both sides have raised something of a, more of a philosophical issue. You have raised the, the concern about moral hazard, that if this tool exists, that yes. the pressure the pressure to, to, re, to cut carbon emissions to zero will be, will be lifted. Your opponents are making a different argument more in the philosophical realm, which is let's just find out. Their argument is let's, let's find some more of the answers to the questions you're raising. Let's, let's, they, they claim there was a taboo on the, on the topic and they're fighting back against that. So take on, the, and I want to take your question to them, but take on their, their, their point that let's just, let's just look into it and find out. Well, um, uh, yes, thank you. Uh, everyone says, um, uh, including our, our opponents tonight, that they completely agree that uh, cutting carbon emissions must come first uh, and that uh, solar geoengineering should never be uh, a substitute for it. We all completely agree on that. But I have to say that it can become a kind of incantation because we have to consider how, in practice, this kind of grand technology is going to play out uh, politically uh, in policy. Incidentally, we're not attempting to close down the debate at all. I mean, we're here tonight. We jumped at the chance to debate this uh, in public. What we're worried about is the way in which um, uh, a, a research program without proper governance will be taken over by particular groups that a constituency will emerge. So who will carry out the research? what ethical guidelines they will follow, and, and in particular, who will own the results? Because there's already been a rush of people taking out patents on geoengineering technologies, privatising it, including aspects of solar geoengineering. So we have to consider the political implications. Research is never pure. It always takes place in a social and institutional context. David Keith, those sound like very, very legitimate concerns. Absolutely, they're legitimate concerns. I think I was actually one of the early people to raise them, and I think that we should not be patenting, and I think this needs to be pretty global. That's why I'm really happy to see there's an Indian research program, there's a Chinese research program, there's research programs in Europe. In fact, the only one of those countries that does not have a formal research program is the U.S. But once, right now is a good thing. But once we hear the word patents, I mean, again, going back to biomedicine well, and so all to controlling... So I actually can't think of a single solar geoengineering patent that's remotely relevant. So I think it's a good concern, and at Carnegie Mellon, we actually we ran a meeting trying to figure out if it was legal to ban what about, what about like the, to do. the strato but, shield? But it's important to say that, that there's essentially none of it happened in practice. Nathan Ver, uh, uh, Merval's strato shield? Correct. That's one of them. It seems completely ridiculous and implausible, and I don't think there's much there, but... Is there, is there a 15-second explanation you can catch us up with what well, you're talking Nathan about? Nathan Merval, the former chief technology officer at Microsoft, set up a company called something Ventures, I forget exactly. Intellectual Ventures. Intellectual Ventures, which has taken out a series of patents, including one over a device called the Strato Shield, uh, which is a, a, essentially a balloon uh, uh, tethered to the earth with a tube um, uh, on it, and it would pump... Uh, sulfate aerosols into the upper atmosphere so, so, as a way of... 
That's and, absolutely. And there's a patent over it. So if that turned out to be the best way to do it, we'd have to go to Nathan Mervold and pay them presumably large amounts of money in order to buy the uh, right to save the Earth. You're saying, David, his idea is not very feasible, but what if there were a feasible idea with a patent owner and it would be the scenario that Clive is talking about? So one answer is you just override. And, and there's good precedent for that. So in this workshop that we had at Carnegie Mellon exploring how to do that, there are places where states just assert control. So I think the answer is there are many different states in this world, and if there was only a single patent on some piece of technology for solar geoengineering, other states would just override. And in practice, the technologies here are actually very um, sort of basic. They're not particularly high technologies, and there's multiple routes. This isn't like biotech. So it's actually pretty hard to see that a patent would make much sense. It's important maybe for the audience to know, patents are cheap. Nathan's group files a lot of patents, and I don't think they think they're serious. I don't think that one's serious. I don't like it. I oppose it. But I think actually of the things that are wrong with solar geoengineering, and there's a lot, this is pretty low on the list. I want to go to audience questions in just a moment, but before we do, I have one question I want to bring to Anjali. Anjali, you, you alone on the panel raised the issue of potential disparities of control between the, a small a small group of powerful nations who historically put most of the carbon into the air, uh, making decisions for, you know, north versus south. And your opponents expressed a kind of optimism that that's a pretty, that that's a, that's a fixable problem. Not, not merely conceivably fixable, but, but that historically the, the, the track record is pretty good when something big has to be done that nations can come together and do it the right way. What is your response to that? I think there is generally a disconnect between advancement of science in the US as opposed to perhaps the rest of the world, because there is a sort of a techno-optimist approach that is in conflict with the values that a lot of the other countries and regional communities place as inherent in some technologies that is being developed. Mm. In solar geoengineering specifically, the difference in approach is particularly apparent in how some countries like the United Kingdom and Germany have withdrawn support for geoengineering research in their countries. In light of these differences in opinions on how we want to really proceed on the technology, in, without there being a global governance framework where every country is on board on how we proceed on the next steps on climate change mitigation or any step forward on climate change, there has to be a global governance framework. And, and you think that's unlikely to happen? Yeah, I think that's unlikely. Let's take it back to Ted. You, you were more optimistic about that. Um, I am. So um, let me stipulate again, we're all arguing about hypotheticals. What would a world be like in which there had been some decision made to develop and use these technologies and who would be controlling it, what would be the impact? Uh, you're absolutely right that the issue of sectional control by a powerful group is a serious concern. Um, Clive, I think you're right that the concern about the debate being distorted by people who have a kind of material interest in intellectual property is a significant concern. And we can see other issues where both of those have been uh, of concern. But we can also see issues where there have been effective adequate, relatively equitable regimes enacted internationally to address global problems. And moreover, there's a couple of reasons to think that geoengineering is likely to not be a particularly pernicious problem uh, in terms of effective and equitable governance relative to all the ones that we face. 
First of all, uh, there's this worry that the fossil interests will take it, sort of capture the debate and basically advocate too much and use that as a justification for continuing to pollute and not cutting emissions. You're talking coal and petroleum, gas and... Yeah, yes, yeah, uh, petroleum and gas. We're talking about climate denial organizations. We'll just move from saying climate change is nonsense, it's not real, to saying, oh, now we've decided it's real, but here's the solution, we still don't need to cut emissions. Um, That absolutely merits concern and attention, but the oddity is that all the evidence that exists goes the other way. The other concern that it would be captured by Nathan Mervold or someone else who holds the crucial patent, here's one place where the the oddity of climate engineering that it's so cheap, I talked about how it's being cheap was a problem because it sort of, it makes the possibility of unregulated or competitive use by multiple actors. It's being cheap also means that there's no fortunes to be made in it. And so the configuration of interests of people kind of monopolizing it and then hijacking the debate, you might say the analogy to a military industrial complex, it isn't really that persuasive. If this is ever used, which is not what we're advocating arguing tonight, my guess is it will look like a dreary public works project. Well, let no. me, let me I, I still want to go to audience questions. I'm going to cut a little, little bit of that time to let Clive respond to. A dreary public works project transforming the atmosphere of planet Earth? I don't think so. And when you think, as, uh, as I suggested, that this is a strategic issue, it has military implications, the military are all already watching this very carefully, I think it's a profound issue of geopolitics. And when we look at uh, the fact that the coal and oil industries are taking... An ind- you know, look, I should say... Uh, most of the people who've been uh, at the forefront of the research in- including and uh, advocacy, including David and Ted, come to it with the best of motives. They, like us, are deeply concerned about climate change and the failure of the Earth uh, to act. Our concern is that once it gets out of the hands of people who are well-motivated and do insist uh, that there should be... Uh, that emission cuts uh, should come first, we're in very murky and difficult territory. I mean, think about it from the point of view of the coal and oil industries. If you have solar uh, geoengineering, there's no need to tax carbon emissions. There's no need to worry about gas guzzlers or deforestation. We'll just ramp up the fleet of uh, sulphur spraying planes. Sounds crude and irrational? Boy, in Washington today, don't crude and irrational (laughs) arguments work? I mean, look at the NRA. So, uh, you know, my, my worst, let me tell you about my worst nightmare. It's a very short one. And that is that Rupert Murdoch watches this debate and says, this sounds like a great idea. And he sends a tweet out and his, I think it's 321 editors around the world says, Rupert has spoken. We now support geoengineering. And every Murdoch uh, newspaper in the world doesn't take account of the subtleties uh, and environmental uh, uh, emphasis that uh, David and Ted do. They say, screw cutting emissions, we're going to put up a solar shield. Then we're really in trouble. Let's go to audience questions, please. Um, Just raise your hands and I'll call on you right down in the front here. Please wait for the mic to come. Thanks for doing that. And if you can tell us your name and then... uh, And again, I want to ask you not to debate with the debaters, but ask them a good question. Hi, I'm Bonnie. If it is so cheap... Is there a a risk that all the geopolitical um, agreements will be put aside by someone like Elon Musk just doing it? 
Ted Parson. No, no, because any megalomaniac individual entrepreneur is a citizen of some country and their enterprises operate under the legal jurisdiction of some country or countries and that however much it is the modern fashion to kind of ignore the state and to disrespect the state and collective action, in fact, states have the authority. And so if it's ever done, it will very likely, in fact, almost certainly be under the authority of states. We might mistrust the competency and integrity of state decision-making, and I don't want to be any slouch in believing in political folly, <laughs> um, but I think we don't need to worry about, we don't need to worry about Dr. Evil or Elon Musk or Bill Gates doing it on their own. Anjali, would you like to take that? I think um, it is unfair to not point out that there have been instances of individuals um, attempting to test these technologies on their own in terms of um, some ocean acidification that has been done off the coast of um, Canada, and that has been only discovered much later, and it, ha it has caused a lot of um, impact on the, the, um, the sea life in, in that area. So th this was where a bunch of iron was dumped into yes. the water yeah. in order to spur algae growth to get the algae yes. to... Yes. Okay, so I don't think most people know that that actually, some guy did that yeah. as, a, as a test. And, so, and, and some guy did it, and then the government of Canada forcefully asserted this, its authority. Yeah, and, and they did so little, it actually had no impact. It was a completely terrible stunt, but the point is the state ruled. As it would. Yeah. Well, I'll just come back to Musk and Gates and so on. I mean, Bill Gates has uh, put a few million dollars into uh, supporting uh, research into geoengineering. And I think, uh, and, there's, and there's Nathan Merval too, who's uh, uh, very interested in it. And um, uh, what it tells you is that there's, it's the American techno fix. Silicon Valley love these kinds of uh, grand schemes. We'll just take control of the earth. You know, it's a technological solution that proves once again uh, the ingenuity of humankind in our intervention over nature. And for people like us, uh, we find this extremely worrying. You know, we, we don't trust um, in this context where you've got the extraordinary complexity of the earth system as a whole, which is still poorly understood, um, uh, inter interfered with by some uh, human technological program uh, which we really don't understand. Thank you for the question. It was perfect in getting the debate to go to a new place. I really appreciate it. Um, right there, if you could stand up and Michael come from your left hand side. Yeah. Um, no, ma'am, ma I was looking at, yeah. I might have missed this in the debate, but I'm wondering if you can speak to, in case I didn't miss it, what happens to the sulfuric acid after it's been daily, hourly pumped into the stratosphere? I'm reading through the list of health effects of sulfuric acid right now, and it doesn't sound great. And then my other question is, as we are talking about reducing emissions to zero, where are the solar-powered trucks that are going to deliver the sulfuric acid? Where are the solar-powered planes that are going to be delivering it into the atmosphere? Okay. Isn't it somewhat ironic, at least, to use fossil fuels to put sulfuric acid into the stratosphere? David Keith. Yeah, um, so sulfuric acid is dangerous, and, and sulfate aerosols kill people. Um, the numbers matter. So right now in the lower atmosphere, we put about 50 million tons a year of sulfates, and along with other things, they uh, uh, shorten the lives of people in very polluted cities by years. Um, 
at the peak, if you were doing solar generation the way I've been talking, you'd be putting about one or two million tons into the stratosphere where it would come down evenly. And uh, we've actually worked with people who are leading health experts who have looked at this, and it turns out that the uh, sulfates already in the, in the atmosphere cool the planet a bit today. Um, sulfates in the stratosphere would cool the planet with a thousand times smaller health impact. So they do have a health impact, but it's about a thousand times smaller than the aerosols in the lower atmosphere. And um, I think the point is we need a low carbon energy system and we need to figure out how to have planes without energy, I think, that, without, without uh, carbon. I want to ask something, I, Angela, you, you covered a lot, of, a lot of material in your opening, but I think I heard you say that putting this stuff into the atmosphere could compromise the effectiveness of solar powered devices, you know, gathering uh, on the ground. Did I hear you correctly? Yes. In, in, in other words, if these solar energy needs the sun and you're putting something to block the sun, you're cutting off its power source. Did what I, I understand yes. that was your argument? And, and so basically to have a coherent strategy on climate change and we are all working towards building renewable energy sources into our whole energy generation system and then we come up with this solution which is only going to reduce the, the feasibility of this one scenario where we're using solar energy to power our systems and that is what um, solar... So yeah, it sounds like a kind of catch-22. I'm wondering yeah, how your opponents um, respond to that. Numbers matter. So the, the things we're talking about would reduce sunlight by of order 1%. But it turns out that solar panels work less well than they're hot. So it doesn't actually reduce the solar output by 1%. It's less than 1% because the panels become more efficient when they're cooler. And uh, what this effectively does is it raises the cost of solar panels by something under 1%. In the last uh, uh, four years or so, the cost of solar panels fell by a factor of three. So while there are a lot of things wrong with solar geoengineering, I think that kind of less than 1% change over a century in the cost of solar panels is not credibly one of them. I think it's really important to bring this aspect back that this is an imaginary technology as of now, and once it's implemented, it could, it could take the fancy of, of any number of nations that it is impacting their climate for the better, and they may want to increase the, the amount of solar, of sulfur aerosols in the atmosphere, and this could have a worse impact than what is initially contemplated. So again, it is, it is a matter of control and, and how much and who's doing what. Another question right on the aisle, please. If you could stand up, thanks. Uh, my, name, my name is Ahmed. Uh, the question for the team for the motion is, uh, what are the implications of trusting governments with such a, with such a technology? And for the do, team- do, do you not feel that they've actually, I think they've kind of covered that? They're very no, skeptical? They, no, they, they just talked about the implication of the technology itself, not of trusting the governments. I, I think, I, let me get to your second question, because I, I, I feel okay. that they've covered that. Good. The second question is, why not we start now, as David said? David said, we should not start now. Why? Oh, okay. That's a great question, David, yeah. How? I think that's easy. At this point, there's a pretty small group of people who are working on this. Um, they're mostly Western, uh, mostly Western white males. They're actually global. There are people in China and in India, as I said, in South America, but it's a small group and there's a danger of groupthink. So the simple answer is we might be wrong. So we've, these climate models all say this could reduce risk a lot, but maybe there's some big thing we're missing. I spent a lot of my time wondering if there's some systematic way that climate models make this look too good. So at least for me, I would not consider implementation until a much larger group had looked at it, and until we had um, groups of people whose specific job was to think technically about all the ways it could go wrong, looking very, very carefully at what we'd suggested. I want to see if that reassures your opponents that 
that point of view? Well, I mean, I'd just uh, take up the point again of, um, of, of uh, governance before research, uh, because research um, doesn't take place uh, in a vacuum, and we think the vacuum uh, should explicitly be filled because we want to know uh, who should carry it out. Um, should it be David uh, with his plan, uh, f forgive me, David, if, if this has changed in recent times, which is to carry out an experiment on, uh, in uh, using a balloon in Arizona to uh, in, uh, inject uh, sulphate aerosols into the lower atmosphere because we don't have the technology yet to put balloons into the upper atmosphere. Um, who sets the ethical constraints? Who will own the results? Um, knowledge gives power to those who own it. And as I said already, uh, people are trying to cash in on this idea of geoengineering by uh, taking out patents, both uh, uh, um, uh, uh, solar radiation management and a whole range of carbon dioxide removal uh, technology. I should actually point out that we on this side aren't opposed to carbon dioxide removing technologies as, uh, as a way of removing CO2 from the atmosphere after um, we've reached uh, net zero because we will have to take it out of the atmosphere. So we're worried that a research program uh, will create constituencies, it'll give momentum, that the idea of deploying it uh, is enhanced by uh, a group and a constituency that backs the research. So, so, you know, Ted Parson. That's our anxiety. So when you, have a, um, when you have a controversial set of technologies, it's always attractive to say, well, we need to go slowly and we need to develop governance in advance of research. But that's almost never how the development of governance for anything works. And the reason is that you don't know what governance you need until you need something about, until you know something about the thing being governed. So a crucial, so a crucial question that's come up several times and really on which nobody knows the answer is, if such a technology was ever deployed, would its effects be a roughly global distribution of benefits kind of moving every part of the world back toward a less perturbed climate? Or would it have a real strong possibility for, as Anjali said, winners and losers? The early results suggest much closer to the former. It's actually very hard to torque this in a way that would be geopolitically destabilizing or militarily attractive because it's really hard to do something here and control it different from something here. But this is early days, you don't know. Now, should that research proceed? And should that research proceed even before we've developed a system to effectively govern you know, use and deployment? I, I think it has to. Another question? Right down front here. And um, second row, please. Or third row, actually, yeah. If you could stand up, please. Thank you very much. My name is Yang. So my question is, uh, what do you see as the uh, urgentness of this issue? So because, because I think whether we should call it crazy depends on what actually we see it. Do we see it as our last resort to like save the humankind, or do we see it just one of the 20 options that we can have, which we have yeah. the time to really study That's it one great, by one? That's a great question. Can I, can I rephrase it and make sure you agree with this and put it to David Keith? Are, are we in trouble if we don't do this? Are we in more trouble if we don't do this than if we do do this? To me? To you, David Keith. I don't Are you good with know. my rephrasing the question? I, 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 because I, I think uh, I speak for everyone here. We, we are receiving information on both sides. On, on yeah. one hand, I think uh, the debaters have emphasized that actually we have to do something now and hopefully quick because 
there is a, a, an urgency there. Mm -hmm. But then uh, I also heard that the, the debater says uh, we, we don't want to be caught crazy because we, we just need some space to actually carry on, to, to carry out uh, very detailed mm -hmm. and uh, uh, specific researches, which implies we actually don't want to start actually doing something very in a, in a very, very, very near future. So I think the question is about the urgency of this figuring out if this is the right solution or not. It certainly isn't the right solution and it's not a solution. But the question is, is it useful to reduce risks this century? And I think there's a lot of evidence that it could be very useful, enough evidence that it makes sense to understand it much better, including thinking about how it would be governed. But I, I think your answer, you had a great question about whether there are 20 different things. I think there are really kind of about four or five big buckets. The most important is cutting emissions. There's this thing, carbon removal, you've been hearing about. There's adaptation, reducing local risks. And there's solar geoengineering. They're not a whole bunch more, I would say. Anjali, would you like to join in? I think um, the way to really think about this is that the political will to addressing climate change has never been stronger. And perhaps we, as, as the world, got started on this very late. But I feel that we finally have things in place to start work on fixing this problem that we have. And by talking about any other technology that would distract our efforts at the moment, would just, would just fizzle our efforts towards working on mitigation and adaptation and all the technologies that we know will work. And the, and the thing that I want to highlight here is that the technologies that we are advocating, we know it will work. And all of, and all of, the, all of the risks associated with solar geoengineering keeps it from being a technology that we know will work. Clive, did you want to add to that? Well, I just want to add this, that um, we, we interpret the question solar, uh, deploying solar geoengineering as a uh, crazy idea. And one of the reasons, in fact, I think the killer objection to it, which hasn't been mentioned yet, is that it's been estimated that if we did send the planes up, uh, it would take at least 10 years of gathering data before we knew whether it worked, before we could separate out the effects of sulfate aerosol spraying from uh, natural climate variability and the effects of um, global warming itself. And so think about that. Let's say 10 or so years, um, the, the, the world's climate is changing, but we don't know whether uh, it's due to uh, the sulphate aerosol spraying. So if the monsoon failed in Pakistan uh, or, the drought, or there was a long drought in the, in the Sahel, um, would those people start blaming the scientists at the Climate Regulation Authority in Arizona or Tashkent or wh wherever it might be? You bet they would. Of the course they'd look to the scientists and the scientists could only say, well, we don't really know whether that drought or that uh, monsoon failure is due to d d what we're let doing. Let me take that to, to David or Ted. Are we talking about actually needing something like a decade-long experiment to figure out if it's working or not? Ten years is reasonable? There's no, no simple answer, but I, I want to push back on the idea that we know that emissions cuts will work. We know emissions cuts will work to cut emissions, but that doesn't deal with the climate risk of the CO2 can that's I, in the atmosphere. Can I ask David, you give a, a, a complicated answer if there's no simple answer to the question of ten years? Because I think it's a crucial question. So I think... Uh, I don't think it's a crucial question, I guess. So, so the obvious question is, why don't we know now what the climate impact of CO2 is? And we don't because there's all this internal variability in the system. 
And precisely because solar geoengineering is in fact, although it seems like a huge thing to climb, and it is in some ways emotionally, it's a small change of the Earth system. So what we're talking about is instead of having the Earth system pushed by you know, five units, we'd be pushing it by three units, and that's spread out over a century. So in fact, the answer is it takes a long time to see that effect. You can see the bad effects of sulfates in the stratosphere very quickly. You can see those in a small experiment quickly. But to see the long-term climate effects is inherently slow, just as it's inherently slow to see so, the long-term climate effects. So Clive's effects. point that it could be 10 years is not, is, that's not I'm not sure what idea. the it is. To see, well, I understood it to mean to, if you put planes in the sky to see what the impact would be of doing this kind of aerosol injection, it would take 10 years to find out if it was having the kind of impact I mean, you, you wanted it to it's have. It's an engineering question. I mean, in engineering, you make a change to a system, you collect data on what's happened, you adjust your change, and you get it, you know, optimize it. But if you have to wait 10 years before you have enough data, uh, before you know whether it's working, then you've got a problem. And, and the thing is, the, the difference with CO2 emissions is that no one's putting CO2 emissions into the atmosphere in order to change the climate. It's a, 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 a tragic side effect. If you're putting SO2 into the upper atmosphere, you are deliberately trying to regulate, have an impact on the climate. And that changes the dynamics, the politics, the blame. The whole ethical question of blame is a very profound one that I'm suggesting would create all kinds of geopolitical so problems. I just want to come back to, would either of you like to respond to, to where we are? Um, so I, I think that question of 10 years is still... Yeah, there's still two there. things. On the 10-year question, I think you can't have it both ways. The fact that it takes wood, we think now, take a long time to observe the climate effects of an intervention is a manifestation of the intervention being small and incremental. You could see effects faster if you hammered with a huge intervention, but that would be a dangerous thing to do. It would be a dangerous thing to do whether it was for the purpose of pushing the climate that far or for the purpose of understanding the effect. So hard signal to noise is actually a manifestation of prudent incremental interventions within the limits of what we now know. Uh, can I also comment on intentionality versus inadvertent? Yes, Before you yes. Do. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, you may not, yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, Inadvertently. It's, uh, it's, an it's an important distinction philosophically, but I'm not convinced that it's an important top-level issue in practical terms, I mean, we already are making an enormous and clearly destructive perturbation to the atmosphere, and the fact that it is the inadvertent side effect of things that people have done for 150 years for good reasons of advancing prosperity and getting energy and so on, doesn't let us off the hook. The blameworthiness is present and large, and the differences with an intervention being intentional, I think, lie in the domain of practical political calculations. Those that are raised by Clive's arguments earlier, you really do want to worry very much about who's in charge. And that depends on how unequal the effects are be, will be, but you do want to worry very much, and so you need governance. But, and you need but Clive, Clive I can give you 25 seconds. Uh, but I'm, you know, think of it from the point of view of the peasant farmer in Pakistan and the, the rains have failed. There's uh, people are starting to go hungry. You know that someone somewhere in the world is messing with the climate system. It's not, it's not an act of God. And uh, a political stirrer comes along and tells you America, the great Satan, is 
messing with your climate. You've got a massive political problem. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, <laughs> where our resolution is engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. And now we move on to round three. Immediately after round three, we'll ask you to vote a second time, and we will then announce the winner of the debate by comparing the first and the second votes. Round three consists of closing statements from each debater in turn. They will stand up again for these. Uh, these uh, closing statements are intended to be... Oh, to, you know, there's one bit of business that I needed to say while we were doing questions, so let me just do that and get it out of the way and pretend this happened earlier. All right? No, no giggling. You're going to giggle, I know it. A, rem a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. <laughs> sorry. You're very patient. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this resolution, engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea. Okay, now we can move forward. Now we move on to round three. Round three are closing statements by each debater in turn. These will be two minutes each. Uh, Anjali, you can make your way to the, to the lectern. Making her closing statement in support of the motion that engineering solar radiation is a crazy idea, please welcome again Oxford scholar Anjali Vishwamohanan. To wind up discussions today, let us go back to the proposition, which is that solar geoengineering is a crazy idea. It is important to recognize that at this point, solar geoengineering is riddled with uncertainties. Former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon once said, engineering solar radiation could risk exacerbating wider threats to international peace and security. Without complete global scientific and political cooperation, there are high chances of misuse of solar geoengineering, the impacts of which will bear down predominantly on the global south than it will in the rest of the world. The first attempt at establishing a global governance regime was initiated at the UN Environment Assembly held in Nairobi last month. The resolution on geoengineering failed for some reasons, which included the forum of where it was raised, but more interestingly, regarding the continuation of research using a precautionary approach. The precautionary approach is a notion that an action must first and foremost avoid doing any harm, and the proponents of an action must demonstrate this avoidance before any action can be taken. And for me, here is where the road forks tonight. Today, each component that determines the fate of this planet and its people are precariously poised. Upsetting one piece will have disastrous consequences. Maybe more for one segment of the population more than the other, but disastrous nonetheless. In these times of uncertainties, where global leaders can't agree to proceed with precaution on a technology that we already know will have negative consequences, that's where I'd say that any efforts to propagate this technology is crazy. Thank you. Thank you, Anjali Vishwamohanan. And that is the resolution, engineering social radiation is a crazy idea, and here to make his opening statement against, I mean, here to make his closing statement against this resolution from UCLA, Ted Parson. Thanks. Time is everything in dealing with climate change. 
because it moves so slowly relative to human perceptions and plans. Climate change is a train wreck happening in slow motion. Visualize that, be cinematic. If we were having this debate in 1990, I'd be on the other side. We knew enough by then to warrant strong action to cut emissions, and if we'd started then, we would have had time to stop the train. We could have managed a transition to a post-fossil climate-safe world economy and confidently held climate change and its impacts to within manageable limits. But it's 2019. And the 30 years of um, delay has let that opportunity slip out of reach. It is still possible to hold climate change to manageable limits, but it's no longer possible to do this confidently, relying only on technologies and policies that are familiar, comfortable, and controversial. Our opponents have highlighted the fact that climate engineering is a technical fix, and they've highlighted the importance of political folly and short-sightedness. The category of technology is too broad to form a meaningful opinion. Everything we do as a human society has technology and it has behavior, and every environmental problem that has been adequately managed so far has been managed to a substantial degree by the deployment of changed and new uh, technology. Why is the air in my home city of Los Angeles so clean now when in the 1970s it was so dirty? Technological changes driven by rational public policy. As for political folly, it's like I don't want to yield anything to our opponents in my recognition of political folly, but you have to make the case that, it that political decision-making would be either more vicious or its consequences more severe in a world that has knowledge about climate engineering or geoengineering than in one that doesn't. And I don't think that's an easy case to make, and I don't think they've made it. Um, we're in a really troubled situation. We need, um, we need to consider, research, and study every plausible approach to emissions cutting, even though we're late, to adaptation, to carbon removal, and also to geoengineering. Geoengineering needs scientific research to inform its capabilities and risks, and it needs serious critical investigation of how to govern it competently, prudently, legitimately, and fairly, and how to integrate it into a coherent, effective climate change response. To call it crazy is to block this needed investigation and to court severe and unnecessary risks. I ask you to vote no. Thank you, Ted Parson. The resolution again, engineering solar, solar radiation is a crazy idea. Here making his closing statement in support of the resolution, Clive Hamilton, author of Earth Masters, The Dawn of the Age of Climate Engineering, Clive Hamilton. I think this debate really comes down to how you understand uh, power and the way that societies work. Technologies aren't neutral. With solar geoengineering, it's highly likely that the climatic uh, preferences of rich white people will prevail. Uh, incidentally, the same people who are largely responsible for bringing on the climate crisis. I take this story, which I tore out of the... Uh, USA Today, uh, just today. Uh, they, the headline is, Facial ID Tools Show Bias. And the story is, a growing body of research shows that artificial intelligence technologies are rife with biases and discrimination. It shows, for example, lending tools charge higher interest rates to Hispanics. 
Job hunting tools favour men. Negative emotions are more likely to be assigned to black men's faces. And the people who studied, did this study at New York University identify the key reason why. The people building these technologies are overwhelmingly white and male. Those who control powerful technologies use it to accumulate more power. That's how the world works, even if we'd love that it were otherwise. And so we uh, would endorse the powerful words of one of the United States' most uh, eminent climate scientists, Ray Pierre Humbert, formerly of the University of Chicago and now at the University of Oxford. For him, crazy is too mild a word. Solar geoengineering, he said, is wildly, utterly, howlingly, barking mad. Vote yes. Thank you, Clive Hamilton. And that resolution is engineering social radiation is a crazy idea. And here making his closing statement against the resolution, David Keith, professor at Harvard and founder of Carbon Engineering. David Keith. Some of you may think that this technology should never be used under any circumstance. Some may think we should have a serious research effort. Some of you might think we should do it relatively soon in order to keep temperatures under 1.5 degrees. None of us is making the decision. This decision will get made decades from now by the next generation. It will be considered. Some government, maybe China after a monsoon causes the crops to fail because geoengineering actually can help with that. Maybe Indonesia after a heat wave kills 100,000 people. Maybe the United States after a Category 5 hurricane hits this place, this city, head on. It will be considered. Suppose our opponents keep winning. Suppose solar geoengineering stays in its crazy corner. We can't bind our children's hands. The decisions about deployment will still be made, but they will be made without adequate understanding of what the risks are, without exploration of technologies that could substantially reduce those risks, without knowledge about how to monitor adequately, and without enough time for nations to discuss how they might govern this technology. Our choice tonight is not about deployment. It's about doing as Ban Ki-moon advocated, not as that little quote said, which was to take this seriously and study it and have open debate. A vote for the resolution is a vote that says you are confident that this should never be used. That's what crazy means. But I don't know where that confidence could come from. I think that is overconfidence, overconfidence to the point of hubris. I urge you to vote no. Thank you, David Keith. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the resolution is engineering social radiation is a crazy idea. And now it's time to learn which side you have found to be the most persuasive. I want to ask you again to go to your mobile devices and vote as you did before you heard all of the arguments. Go to that URL, iq2us.org forward slash vote. You'll be presented with the same choices to vote for the resolution, against the resolution, or to declare yourself uh, remaining or becoming undecided. And we will give you about a minute more to complete that process, and then we'll lock out the vote, and we'll have the results in about three to four minutes. And while we're doing that, um, 
I, I, I just want to say something about your, your closing statements. Um, when, we, when we ask debaters to come onto the program, particularly debaters who may not know the program, they ask how it unfolds and what you should, what, you know, what works and what are the closing statements like. And um, there have been a couple of debates over the years that I refer new debaters to. I say, why don't you watch this debate? They had really great closing statements. Tonight's debate became the one I'm going to start using because all four closing statements were just knocked it out of the ballpark. It's very, very hard in two minutes to make your point, and you all did it really, really brilliantly. Um, and the other thing I want to say, it's clear that there was passion and, and, and you know, deeply held feelings among four people who are all similarly concerned about the climate. It, there was almost a sort of Rocky and Apollo Creed kind of uh, relationship here <laughs> where you've been fighting each other so long you kind of learn to respect each other. And, and I felt that respect on the stage. I think it, this typified the thing that we want to do at Intelligence Squared, which is to have a good, tough conversation, but be able to shake hands afterwards. So I congratulate all four of you for what you did here. Thank you. And, and, and Ted Parson, maybe, maybe it's the fact that you're Canadian, but I loved your use of the English language. And I'm going to come, I love the description of the goal of all of this work is to create a, quote, less perturbed climate. <laughs> I'm going to start using that from now on. To everybody who got up and asked a question, uh, I was glad that we were able to use all of the questions tonight. They were really on point. They all worked to move this debate to a better place. For those of you I couldn't get to, uh, I apologize for that. While we're waiting for the vote, I just have a question, something that's relatively out of the news to the topic we're on tonight, just to get your take on it. This is not part of the competition. Um, but geoengineering came up uh, at a UN um, environment, uh, United Nations Assembly discussing the environment. And um, when, when the topic came up about whether to, uh, to continue a conversation on the issue of researching and regulation and oversight of gene, you know, really to put geoengineering on the table, the two strongest leading votes against doing that, kind of the votes for crazy, I guess, were the United States, and Saudi Arabia. And um, I'm curious, you know, Saudi Arabia, that, they're big fossil. So on, your, your point would be big fossil would uh, want to keep this going. So I'd like to get the take from all four of you. What do you think is going on there politically? Um, I've been trying to get the inside scoop on this ever since it happened, and I've heard a few contradictory stories. So we're not doing the debate anymore, but no, if we no. were still doing the debate, I'd say, C, it's the three countries that are most vigorously opposed to aggressive emission cuts that are trying to shut down debate on geoengineering. Um, someone who was there suggested to me that the United States story was simpler than that, that it's, it's just the United States hates the UN Environment Program and doesn't ever want it to do anything, because it's UN environment, and I don't know if you all know, the UN Environment Program has an explicit mandate of kind of more equal representation and participation from the, from the global south re uh, relative to other international organizations. So, yeah, Clive. Well, I've been to quite a number of these um, massive UN uh, climate conferences, and you know, the, the reasons that certain nations take certain positions can be Byzantine, yeah. and you really have to, you know, there was no obvious answer to the question, you really had to go into it, yeah. people will give you different kinds of answers, it could have been, I wasn't there, I'm just purely speculating that the, that the United, what you said is quite plausible, UN, hate UN, we don't want to mm -hmm. give them power to do anything. Another argument, I don't think this is true, but one argument might have been, well, you know, when it comes to it, 
we're not wanting this, this kind of pissy UN organisation having any say. You know, we, the United States, when it comes to it, if it comes to it, we're going to want to have a say. We'll take charge. Angela, your, your expression seems to think, suggest you think there's more to it than that. Um, so that's what I was talking about in my closing remarks. So the only thing I know about what happened at the UNEA are from different perspectives that people have written on what happened from it. And um, I think the two points of um, contention was whether the forum was the right forum to bring up geoengineering at. Um, and the second one was about the precautionary principle. So um, the UK and a, and a lot of the European countries were, were unwilling to pass the resolution unless the term precautionary approach was included in the resolution, which the US and um, Saudi Arabia did not back. And that was one of the reasons that the UK and the EU also pulled back their support from passing the resolution. Finally, David, do you have a thought? Yeah, I, I agree with that story precisely. And, and part of it evolved as the preamble language of it evolved. And mm -hmm. so those things came in. So the countries that originally pushed it and the countries that opposed it changed. I think the other part is a straight jurisdictional fight that uh, uh, some set of countries think this should be resolved in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, not in UNEP. Mm. They're both mm. kind of UN umbrella agencies, but they're different agencies, and there's a battle about that. Mm. All right, interesting. Thanks for sharing all of that. I, I want to let everybody know this is our last debate of the season here in New York. Uh, we did a lot of really great topics. We covered de-extinction, uh, the tech race between the US and China, other topics as well. And I just want to let you know, I mentioned this at the beginning, you can watch all of our debates, and we now have racked up uh, more than 165 of them at IQ q2us.org uh, or you can subscribe to our podcast and hear your own applause uh, you can get those anywhere uh, you listen to podcasts tomorrow we're releasing our latest episode which was on the resolution all hail the driverless car it was a really good debate and i hope you'll enjoy it um, all right i have the final results now again we give victory to the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second vote. The resolution is this. Engineering social radiation is a crazy idea. On the first vote, 24% of you agreed with the resolution. That means they think that solar geoengineering is a crazy idea. 37% voted against the resolution. That's the side that David and Ted were arguing here tonight. 39% were undecided. Again, it's the difference between that vote and the one I'm about to announce that determines our winner. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, their first vote was 24%, their second vote was 19%. They lost five percentage points. The team arguing against the resolution, David and Ted, their first vote was 37%, their second vote was 75%. They pulled up 38 percentage points. That makes them the winner. The team arguing against the resolution that engineering social radiation is a crazy idea, our winner. Our congratulations to them, but our congratulations to all four of these debaters. Thank you very much from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. <laughs>